be honest, I wouldn't uh, blame you if you felt a little bit disappointed, particularly if you've been here over the last um, few weeks, when you get to the end of Job. Right up to the last chapter, I think it has been a great help to us, especially for those of us who suffer. It seems to help us to engage in the mysterious nature of suffering in which there are no clear answers. Job, um, Nick's already reminded us, asks question after question after question and never really hears a clear answer to his questions. His friends are criticised, they get criticised in Job 42, Um, For their simplistic, trite solutions, they conclude that Job must have sinned in some terrible way. That's why he's suffering. And God says to them quite specifically, they have not spoken well of him. They are wrong. Those simplistic answers to the question of suffering, Job rules out of court. Instead, um, when God does speak as... um, Again, Nick, thank you very much. You gave us a good introduction to what I was going to say today. Um, he, he called us to trust in his goodness, his faithfulness, his awesome power and, that, and, and warned us that we must just accept mysteries that we will never fathom this side of the grave. So, so far, so good. That actually is a real help to people like us who suffer. Because Job has been speaking about our world, a world in which accidents happen, in which illnesses strike, fortunes are lost, families are torn apart, and in the end we don't know why, as Job didn't. And so, like him, we felt ourselves drawn into this this solution which is not a solution. Not an answer to Job's questions as such, it is just a simple calling to trust in the goodness and kindness of the invisible God. That is painful and yet ironically it is, it is satisfying. So for me at least it's pretty unsatisfying then to unexpectedly, right at the end of the story, to lurch towards what feels much more like a trite fairy tale. Verse 12, The Lord blessed the latter part of Job's life more than the former part. He had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, 1,000 donkeys, 7 sons, 3 daughters, and so on. Verse 16, After this, Job lived 140 years and saw his children and their children to the fourth generation, and so Job died an old man and full of years. He has twice as many possessions as he had before all his tragedy uh, happened. He gets replacement sons and daughters. He finally lives to a ripe old, ripe old age, living in, his bosom, in the bosom of his family. It's, it's classic fairy tale stuff. It's, it's um, like all the, all the fairy tales um, uh, that we read as children have. Um, they all lived happily ever after. And if only that was true, it would be satisfying. But it's not, is it? In the stories of the uh, uh, Scheherazade in the Thousand and One uh, Nights, I don't know whether you've um, ever dipped into that, they end, they all end slightly more realistically. She says at the end, they lived happily until there came to them the one who destroys all happiness, death. 
in a sense, that brings us a bit closer to reality, that kind of fairy tale. But not that much. I mean, what about premature deaths? What about, what, 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 what about um, uh, all the miseries which are not reversed before death, as Job's seem to conveniently have been? I mean, people long for happy endings, don't they? The, the vast majority of novels uh, supply them. Hollywood, um, uh, at least the, the accountants behind the scenes, insist on them. Children's books don't sell without them. There have always been uh, rebellious bands of realists who protested against that. You know, the Greeks wrote their tragedies as well as their comedies, as uh, did Shakespeare. You know, Romeo and Juliet end up dead. Almost everybody does in Hamlet. There, there are tragedies in fiction. A few brave film directors have tried to sell films with unhappy endings, usually unsuccessfully. Because there's this sort of, this, this yearning, this longing, this draw towards a happy ending which feels good and yet somehow doesn't match reality. And so for those of us who've reflected on that, and there have been many commentators, the end of Job looks like a cop-out. After all the good work that Job has done, finally he gives in to the pressure, the storyteller. And there is a happy ending. Or, or uh, uh, if it is a historical uh, incident, as, as I said at the beginning, which is not absolutely clear, it seems to make it all the less satisfactory because suddenly Job doesn't relate to us. Why is there then this happy ending at the end of the book of Job? Well, let me suggest why it might be. I suspect, you see, that that, that, that human longing that there is for happy endings is not actually a chasing after fantasy. It's an intuition of reality. And so... uh, Far from the end of the book becoming a disappointment in that it lurches into fiction, I want to suggest to you that in the wisdom of God, God put it there because it was the best thing he could do within the context of this Old Testament situation to point us towards an ultimate, much more profound reality in which there is a happy ending. In one sense, he doesn't spell it out. In fact, um, uh, uh, Job belongs to a kind of literature in the Old Testament called wisdom literature, which is, is punctuated through with with, with, with a certain dissatisfaction. It, it, at one level, it unpacks the way the world is in, um, in, in a satisfying way. And yet, wisdom literature again and again and again 
leaves us not quite fully satisfied. We are supposed to feel dissatisfied because the end of Job is not the end of the story. Job, like, like, like a good story that, 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 that leaves us hanging on the edge of our seats, is inviting a sequel. The sequel is the New Testament. So, I want to show you this morning, just a, um, a little bit at least, to how actually this tantalising end that there is to the book of Job, this in a deep sense dissatisfying end to the book of Job, actually starts to make proper sense, actually puts, puts things in proper perspective when we meet Jesus. I call this talk, Job Meets Jesus. Because it's only then that we see with full clarity what the book of Job is longing for and can't quite speak fully about. There are two uh, um, things that I uh, want you to notice in the book of Job um, to try and help us to understand that. And we'll have to do a little bit of flicking, I'm afraid, because we're going to review some of what Job has said. The first of those is that we need to understand what it was Job longed for in his suffering. Chapter 13, page 518. Job longs to see God face to face. 13 verse 20. Only grant me these two things, God, then I will not hide from you. Withdraw your hand from me, stop frightening me with your terrors, then summon me and I will answer, or let me speak, and you reply to me. I'm confused, God, he's saying. Let me come and, come and speak to you, face to face, then we can have it out. Or a little bit further back in chapter 9, page 515, verses 32 to, uh, sorry, 516 it is, 32 to 34. He complains about God... He is not a mere mortal like me that I might answer him, that we might confront each other in court. If only there was someone to mediate between us, someone to bring us together, someone to remove God's rod from me so that his terror would frighten me no more. If only then he could come face to face with God. If only perhaps there was someone who could stand between him and God, who could somehow mediate between them. This is what he longs for because he's suffering and he just can't see why. How he would have rejoiced to see Jesus. Jesus, who the New Testament says is the exact representation of God's being. On one occasion, Philip said sceptically, show us the Father, meaning show us God, Jesus. And Jesus said, don't you know me, Philip? In other words, you want to see God? You look at me, says Jesus. God is no longer inscrutable 
Here is God revealing himself in flesh and blood. Here is God no longer infinitely exalted, far above the universe, as Job complained he was. Here is is God fully, bodily, engaged with his universe. The writer of the Hebrews wrote, in bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through everything, uh, through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. Since Jesus, according to the Bible, is God made man, he is saying there, it was fitting that God should, in a sense, perfect himself, perfect his plan of salvation, perfect his story by coming to earth and suffering. Job's question and problem is answered by the New Testament reality that in Jesus God became man and suffered. Suffered Suffering which began with opposition and hardship and loneliness and alienation, but which continued on to arrest and false imprisonment and beatings and ritual humiliation and a kangaroo court and torture and desertion and execution. And as he hung on the cross, Jesus, suffering the most excruciating pain, cried out effectively the same thing that Job had cried out. My God, my God, why have you deserted me? But this is God the Son deserted by God the Father. This is somehow God engaging at the deepest level that he could in his being with the cry of Job. What Job longed for, we have seen. Job 23 verses 3 and 4, If only I knew where to find him, if only I could go to his dwelling, I would state my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments, says Job. And Jesus says, Job, you've found me. Here I am on a cross, dying for your sins. Here I am homeless. Here I am friendless. Job 9 verse 32, He's not a mere mortal like me, says Job. Oh yes, I am, Job. Quite literally, Mortal, I'm dying for you, Joe. Remember, when Job saw the glory of creation, he clapped his hands over his mouth and repented in dust and ashes for all his vain words. How he would have fallen in worship before the God who finally revealed himself in Jesus. John Stott says, 
in his superb book, The Cross of Christ, I could never myself believe in God if it were not for the cross. The only God I believe in is the one Nietzsche ridiculed as God on the cross. The real, in the real world of pain, how could one worship a God who was immune to it? I've entered many Buddhist temples in different Asian countries and stood respectfully before the statue of the Buddha, his legs crossed, arms folded, eyes closed, the ghost of a smile playing around his mouth, a remote look on his face, detached from the agonies of, the, of this world. But each time, after a while, I've turned away. And in my imagination, I had turned instead to that lonely, twisted, tortured figure on the cross, nails through hands and feet, back lacerated, limbs wrenched, brow bleeding from thorn pricks, mouth dry, intolerably thirsty, plunged in God-forsaken darkness. That is the God for me, he says, who laid aside his immunity to pain, who entered our world of flesh and blood and tears and death, who suffered for us. Our sufferings become more manageable in the light of his. There's still a question mark against human suffering, but over it we boldly stamp another mark. The cross. That symbolises divine suffering. Or uh, Edward Shillitoe, uh, a little after the First World War, wrote a very influential poem, Jesus of the Scars. It ends like this. The other gods were strong, but thou wast weak. They rode, but thou didst stumble to a throne. But to our wounds, only God's wounds can speak. And not a God has wounds, but thou alone. Job would have shouted with joy to see that. He longed to see God. But Job did get a little bit of encouragement. I want to look as well at what Job glimpsed. Throughout Job's speeches, we've, 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 we've looked at them occasionally, but I want to bring it together. Throughout Job's speeches, there are occasional Glimpses of hope which go far beyond actually what we even see at the end of the book. He uh, glimpses, for instance, in chapter 14, full forgiveness. Surely then you will count my steps, he says in verse 16, but not keep track of my sin. My offences will be sealed up in a bag. You will cover over my sin. Oh, perhaps he does receive forgiveness by the end of the book. But more than that, chapter 16, verses 19 and 20, he glimpses a, a, a heavenly intercessor. Even now, he says, my witness is in heaven, my advocate is on high, my intercessor is my friend, as my eyes pour out tears to God. On behalf of a man, he pleads with God as one pleads for a friend. Isn't that extraordinary? Someone other than God is there in heaven, Job has seen, pleading for his friend Job. Who is that? 
The Apostle Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8, verse 34, Jesus Christ, he says, who died, but more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. What Job glimpsed, the New Testament has made clear. Or uh, in chapter 19, verse uh, 25, there is uh, an extraordinary um, uh, set, set of statements by Job. I know, he says, that my Redeemer lives and that in the end he will stand on the earth. By the way, just in case, um, just in case Judy and I get killed simultaneously in a car crash at any point, um, Judy wants Handel's version of uh, the, this verse from the Messiah, sung at her funeral. So make sure you remember that if we um, are suddenly both uh, taken out. Because it is one of the most extraordinary statements of confidence tucked away there in the Old Testament. I know my Redeemer lives. He is looking forward to a Redeemer who will pay the price for his sin and therefore set him free to return to a relationship with God. He's looking forward to one who lives eternally. He must be looking forward to the risen Jesus. Well, more than that, he is looking forward to his own resurrection. It goes on, doesn't it? And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh will I see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes, I and not another, how my heart yearns within me. That's why the ending of Job was so unsatisfactory. Because in the end, Job dies. This is why the agony of life is, is never resolved in this life. The American doctors like to, to coyly say about um, their dealings with their patient that every, um, um, uh, every patient's care ultimately ends in a negative patient outcome. They die. Late 20th, cynic, 20th century cynics love to say, life's a bitch and then you die. What did Scheherazade say? They lived happily until they came the one who destroys all happiness. Death. It is so unsatisfying, the end of Job. But Job had glimpsed more. After his skin was destroyed, he would be re-enfleshed. And then he, as he says, he himself, not another, would see God with his own eyes. I've said before, one of my favourite verses in the Bible is in Luke 24, where the disciples meet the risen Jesus who is not a ghost, he is solid flesh and blood and we are told they could not believe for joy because it was so much better than they thought. 
and they were slowly engaging with having Jesus back in the flesh. And then slowly, 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 it was registering that if Jesus, a human being, could come back in the flesh, maybe those hints that Job and others saw in the Old Testament was really true that they will too be bodily risen and live in a new physical life where they eat fish and enjoy friendship and and enjoy a new heaven and a new earth. It is so, such incredibly good news that the first um, Christians found it very, very hard to believe and yet slowly, slowly, slowly they did because Jesus rose from the dead. What Job glimpsed, we have seen. So now we live in a world and with a a, a vision set before us which is far, far more than Job ever had. Job had to make do with seeing a few glimpses and and being reminded that this extraordinary creation speaks of a God who is faithful and kind and just. But we have seen Jesus. We have written down for us a solid promise At the end of the Bible, in Revelation 21, John says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God and he will wipe every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. Job said, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes after he just had a few glimpses. What should we do? Now I want to leave you with this thought at the end of this series. It is absolutely appropriate that we respond to the mysterious suffering with questions and perhaps agonising and there may well be periods of doubt and questioning just as Job had. The book is placed in scripture to say it is okay to be troubled by these things. They are troubling. Anyone who's not troubled by the problem of suffering either has a hard heart or a soft head. But we who have seen Jesus, surely we should more quickly than Job say, I despise myself because I worship the God who suffered the God who broke the power of death, the God who revealed in glorious technicolour what Job only glimpsed 
There's a little story that I've read before here and it's done the rounds, but let me finish by reading it. The end of time, billions of people were seated on a great plain before God's throne. Most shrank back from the brilliant light before them, but some groups near the front talked heatedly, not cringing with cringing shame, but with belligerence. Can God judge us? How can he know about suffering? Snapped a pert young brunette. She ripped open a sleeve to reveal a tattooed number from a Nazi concentration camp. We endured terror, beatings, torture, death. In another group, a Negro boy lowered his collar. What about this? He demanded, showing an ugly rope burn. Lynched for no crime, but being black. Another, in another crowd, there was a pregnant schoolgirl with southern, sullen eyes. Why should I suffer? She murmured, it wasn't my fault. And far out across the plain were hundreds of such groups. Each had a complaint against God for the evil and suffering he had permitted in his world. How lucky God was to live in heaven where all was sweetness and light, where there was no weeping or fear, no hunger or hatred. What did God know of all that man had been forced to endure in this world? For God leads a pretty sheltered life, they said. So each of these groups sent forth their leader, chosen because he had suffered the most. A Jew, a Negro, a person from Hiroshima, a horribly deformed arthritic, a thalidomide child. In the centre of the vast plain they consulted each other and at last they were ready to present their case. It was rather clever. Before God could be qualified to be their judge, he must endure what they had endured The decision was that God should be sentenced to live on earth as a man. Let him be born a Jew. Let the legitimacy of his birth be doubted. Give him a work so difficult that even his family will think him out of his mind. Let him be betrayed by his closest friends. Let him face false charges. Be tried by a prejudiced jury. Convicted by a cowardly judge. Let him be tortured. At the last, let him see what it means to be terribly alone. And let him die so there can be no doubt he died. Let there be a great host of witnesses to verify it. As each leader announced his portion of the sentence, loud murmurs of approval went up from the throng of people assembled. When the last had finished pronouncing the sentence, there was a long silence. No one uttered a word. No one moved. Suddenly all knew God had already served his sentence. 